Would you please join me in a word of prayer? Lord God, I thank you for the good news of the resurrection. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gift and hope of Easter. And I pray now that you would give the gift of faith to any who have not trusted. Lord, help me now as I preach. For I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, happy Easter, church. Our last normal Sunday service was only March 8th, but it seems so much longer. It seems like it was two months at least. And since then, we've been driven onto Facebook Live. We've been doing church in a very different way. Uh, But someone said to me that this is potentially the greatest proclamation of the resurrection in the history of humankind because so many churches have now taken to the internet. The message of Christ's victory is going out all over the place. There's a real eagerness in the church, and I know you're feeling it. Um, Palm Sunday, uh, we had uh, just such excitement in those people that drove to the church for the car processional we did. I think we had 85 cars show up. Some people had tears. They said they were fighting back uh, tears of joy and longing as they drove into the parking lot and saw the signs that were, that were placed there. Our Stations of the Cross on Friday that we set up on the campus here had people walking through almost so many people that there were lines at some of the stations. That wasn't the point. We were trying to be distant from one another, but there was just such a desire to reconnect with our church. And of course, the comments that you're putting on Facebook Live speak to this. There is a pressure building in the midst of God's people to come back into his house and to worship him. In fact, Jan, who puts our bulletin together, uh, typically I asked her if she made a bulletin and she smiled and she said, yeah, I actually made 40 of them. And I said, why? And she said, well, in case people just come anyway. She was expecting the church to break out against the restrictions and come and be in here. Don't do that, by the way. Please don't do that. That's not good, not safe. But she could feel what I think many of us are feeling. There's a hunger, there's a desire, there's a longing. I miss you. Being apart is awful. This is awful. But I think about Jesus who said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And this morning, we're focused on the fact that Jesus is risen, not has been risen, He is risen. He is in a state of having been risen that continues forward. He has overcome, and that has eternal consequences. But still, Lord, please heal our world of this sickness right now. The reason I start with this is not just because it's relevant to what we're feeling, but I want you to think about the church on Easter. Not our church in particular, but the church, the universal church. Its existence is the strongest proof for the resurrection. Consider this. It's a global church. It's over 2,000 years old. It's the largest religion in the world. It's estimated that one out of every six humans on this planet believes the resurrection happened. When the church is persecuted, it grows like wildfire. It spreads. When the church becomes compromised, revivals break out and it's renewed. And Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. People sometimes come to me as a pastor and they ask me Bible questions or they say, I really have a hard time accepting that 
a global flood happened and then God helped Noah build an ark and those animals all went in. Do you expect me to believe that? Or how is it possible that Jonah was thrown into the sea and then a whale swallowed him and he stayed alive for three days? I mean, do you really expect me to believe that? And when I hear these kind of things, I always point people back to the resurrection. I suggest that they're starting in the wrong place. Don't start asking the question about Adam and Eve or Moses or the dinosaurs or any of that stuff. Go to the resurrection. That's where you've got to start. Because if the resurrection is false, nothing that Jesus said matters. He's just another failed hero, like all the other ones you've never heard of. If you study history and look through the books, there are tons of people who got a big following and said impressive things and were killed. They're still in their tombs. The reason you've heard the name Jesus is because the tomb was empty. So if what he said, that he would rise on the third day, if what he said was true and he rose, then everything that Jesus said must be central in your life. You cannot go on thinking it's mildly important. It's either all important or not important at all. You can't be in the middle. You must hear him speak and speak all of his word. I think it's also fair to expect him to act in your life and in the world. Because if the tomb is empty, it means Jesus is alive, he's risen, he's ascended, and he is ruling the universe. Unseen by us, yes, but he is alive and acting. And this morning I ask you this question, what do you believe about the resurrection? Today we're going to be looking at John and his eyewitness gospel. It's John's eyewitness account of what happened, but I want to say something about what a gospel is. There are four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And while they are based on eyewitness accounts, they're also highly crafted, artistic portrayals of the truth. They don't play fast and loose with the details, but they also are not giving a police report of what happened. John is trying to communicate something in a a literary and an artistic way, which explains why some of the accounts from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have differing points or details or emphases. And great efforts have been made to synchronize all of these, and, and I think they all do work together, but understand that John was trying to communicate something to us which this morning I would suggest to you, he's communicating to us how the church got started. What started it? And I'd like to look at John chapter 20, and I'd like to look at three things. I'd like to look at the empty tomb, the visible Lord, and then the transformed followers. So let's start with the empty tomb. The text today John chapter 20 starts out with Mary Magdalene, very prominent. She was one of the followers of Jesus. She had had a very sordid past. Jesus had come into her life, had delivered her from a number of things and loved her like no one else had ever loved her. She became one of his followers. She's not super prominent in John's gospel until we get to Holy Week. And she follows alongside everything that happened to Christ. She was the one who stayed right to the very end of the crucifixion. She followed Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus as they took the body down and went to the tomb. All of the gospel accounts point out that the women saw where the tomb was. They didn't scatter. They stayed with Jesus. They went all the way to the tomb. They watched where he was. One of the gospels says that they then went home and prepared spices, and then they just waited on the Sabbath day because they were forced to rest. And so she was eager 
to get there in the morning. And it starts and it says that on the first day of the week, this is Easter Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Now, it doesn't say this here. It's focused on Mary, but she had others with her. And she uses the plural we in verse 2. They have taken our Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So they went to the tomb early. It was still dark. She saw that it was open. It was so dark, she didn't look in. She immediately ran all the way back and told the apostles what had happened. And that's where she says that. They've taken our Lord out of the tomb. Now, let me pause there for a minute and point something out. If you were making this up, you would not make the protagonists, all the people, so full of doubt. She presumed someone had taken him out of the tomb. She did not presume that he was resurrected. So Peter and John then run to the tomb. And John says he outran Peter, but he stopped and didn't go in. He hesitated. And then Peter, being the impulsive one that he is, went straight in and saw the grave clothes. They looked in and they were perplexed. It says in verse 8 that the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also then went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Now it says he believed, but it also says he didn't quite yet understand what was going on. So they went home perplexed, wondering what all this means. For John, it was starting to come together. Oh yeah, Jesus said he was going to rise on the third day. Maybe that's what's happened. And he's, he's starting to believe. And Peter's still perplexed. And they go home wondering. Now I want to point something out about John's gospel. He is asking the question of, do you believe this? He says, the purpose of this book, later in the same chapter, in chapter 20, verse 31, 30 and 31, he says, Jesus did many other signs. His resurrection, of course, the greatest of all signs. He did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing have life in his name. That's what John is trying to do. He's writing this gospel so that you will believe and have life, have the new kind of life. Now, there's grave clothes in this tomb. And you have to understand the way that Jewish people did burials is they cut into a, a, a hillside and they carved out a flat spot that was like a table, like a little bench in the side. They would wrap a body in linens, put spices on it, they would put it in there and let it decay for a year, maybe. Then they would come back and take the bones and put them into a smaller box and put them with the rest of the family, those who had gone before. So Jesus, as you know, went into that tomb with no worldly possessions. His last possession was gambled away at the foot of the cross and soldiers had his clothing. And so his naked body was taken down, wrapped up, Spices were put on there for the process of decaying, and then he was laid in that tomb. And when they went in, what they saw were those, those linen straps, whatever he was wrapped in, as though his body had just passed through it, because that's probably what happened. His resurrected body could pass through doors and locked rooms. It just passed through. The clothing fell down right where he was laying. And then the head cloth, what his head was wrapped with, was nicely folded and neatly placed aside. No human saw this happen, but I imagine Jesus, just like his earthly ministry before this, was totally in control. He was not rushed. He rose to new life. 
He took the time to fold that. He neatly placed it there. And then he went out. He left the tomb resurrected. And I want to say that a resurrection body is different than a resuscitated body. Poor Lazarus had to do his dying all over again. Jesus brought him back to life, but it was the kind of life you and I have now. Jesus in his resurrected body was different. It was similar, but different. He's the only one to have ever been resurrected like this. Yes, it was bodily, physical, but it was different. And they had trouble recognizing him at first. So let's go to point number two. Point one is the empty tomb. Point two is the visible Lord. Now, when the disciples went back home, and I think the other women went back home, Mary stayed there by herself, stricken with grief, weeping, praying, just kind of lost and hurting, confused. In fact, her grief was so great that when angels appear in the tomb and she sees them, she's not stricken with fear like most people when they see angels. She's just so caught up in her grief. The angels say, why are you weeping? He's not here, he's risen. And I I think it's an interesting speculation on what happened, but the angels are talking to Mary and then Jesus comes behind her. And John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers said, she saw on the face of the angels their awe and surprise and wonder at seeing the resurrected Jesus behind her that she turned around. But she didn't realize who it was yet. She thought it was the gardener. She still, in her mind, is confused. She's thinking that the gardener may have taken him and put him somewhere else. (laughs) Disbelief, grief, a lack of expectation. She went there thinking she was going to anoint his body, a dead body. She did not go there expecting to find him alive. Who would make that up if they were writing the story? Then there's a question. Jesus says, whom are you seeking? John bookends his gospel with that question. Back in chapter one, uh, verse 38, he says, what are you seeking? To the first apostles that start following him before he's called them, what are you seeking? And he says to her, what are you seeking? And he says to you and I, what are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? She then realizes who it is when he calls her by name, Mary. And the early church referred to her as the apostle to the apostles because he sends her. That's what apostle means, a sent one. I'm sending you. Go and tell my brothers that I have risen. She's given the charge to go and declare what she has seen. And she gets there. And this is in verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these other things to her. I have seen the Lord. This is one of the reasons that the church grew so quickly and continues to grow, is that so many people saw the Lord. Now, I won't lie, after having gone through the passion yet again this this time around on Friday, if I was Jesus, which I am not, I would have gone to Pilate and Herod and Caiaphas, and I would have been like, what do you say now? You know, told you so. I would have been so tempted to do that. Jesus doesn't. He goes to his disciples, but he does go to a lot of people. And some people claim that the gospel is distorted. You know, it was written so long after this, it was made up to give a reason for the church, etc. But I want to point out that Paul, the apostle, wrote 1 Corinthians within probably 15 years of the resurrection. And he talks about firsthand witnesses who are still alive. Let me just read you a couple verses from 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following. And I want to point out that the visible Lord was seen. 
Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul writes that and says, you that I'm writing to can verify this. People are still alive who saw the resurrected Lord. He was visible. The tomb was empty. And my third point is the transformed followers. When Mary realizes that it's Jesus, she must have grabbed onto him in some way. Maybe she took his hand, grabbed his arm. Maybe she fell at his feet and just started to hold on and kiss his feet. Whatever it was that, that she had done, it caused him to say, don't do this. The relationship has changed. I'm, of course, paraphrasing. Let me read it to you. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father. I want to point out a couple of things about this. In John chapter 14 through 16, Jesus was explaining, I'm now going back to the Father. Things are going to change. And this is good for you because I will send the Spirit, the Counselor, the Helper. And the relationship has changed. For the first time in John's Gospel, he uses the term brothers. He's called them servants. He's called them friends. He's called them the 12 and other things. This is the first time he calls them brothers. Jesus has started a new type of relationship for us with God. We can be brothers and sisters in Christ. We can be adopted sons and daughters of God. I am ascending to my father and to your father. There is a new kind of relationship that has to happen here. And just like it is today, it's not a physical one. You and I can't go and hold Jesus's hand or kiss his feet, literally. And that was what was going to happen. And Mary had to accept this. The relationship was going to develop into a new way. But Jesus wasn't opposed to being touched. He just didn't want her to cling to him in the old manner. He wasn't going to be at meals and talking to them in the same way. But when he does visit the other disciples, in, in particular Thomas, he says, come and touch. See the nails? Touch my side. See, he asked for food because he was physical, bodily resurrected. He was not a ghost, and he wanted them to, know, them to know that. There's a new relationship and a new kind of people. Notice that Peter and John are still kind of confused and doubting, but then look in Acts at what happens. They become so bold in their witness. Whereas Peter had denied Jesus three times, he's been reinstated in the next chapter of John's gospel, and he goes on to lead the church with incredible spiritual authority and power and boldness. In fact, all of them were transformed. I read a quote from the philosopher Blaise Pascal who said, the witness who has his throat cut is the one I believe. It's a graphic way of saying these disciples all died for their faith. People who are so convinced he was alive that they're willing to die are the ones that are worth listening to. And all but one of them died for their faith. They were martyred because of what they believed. The reason they did that 
is because they know Jesus overcame. The tomb was empty. He rose. He has overcome sin and death and Satan and fear. The resurrection is true. And the existence of the church in the world is proof of that. If you're a skeptic, if you're struggling with this, I encourage you to ask the question, how do you explain the church? Jesus is alive. And a new relationship with him has become possible. It's interesting that this Easter message is almost the identical message I preach at funerals. They, they go hand in hand because Jesus has overcome death. He's taken the sting out of death. He's taken the fear for the believer out of death. Death is just another blip on our life. We just move past it. It's not the end. It's just a new kind of beginning. It's a small part of living. And this morning, I want to ask you, will you believe in Christ? Will you enter into this new kind of relationship he has made possible? Christ is alive. He is risen. And he is Lord of all. I'm going to pray and invite you to join me. And then our team's going to come back up and we're going to sing a sermon response song before we continue with the liturgy. Lord Jesus, you are alive. And we declare alleluia, praise God. Father, for anyone who does not yet believe, I pray that you would give them the gift of faith. Help them to trust. Lord, you ask us what we're seeking. And all of our desire is ultimately desire for you. Help us to find you. And Lord, for those of us that know you already, I pray for great joy, even in the midst of the suffering of our current situation. Jesus, you are risen and you have overcome. And we worship you this morning. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen.